This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guests today are hit makers on their 50th anniversary tour celebration, the Act America. We have Dewey Bennell and Jerry Beckley. Great to have you guys here. Wow, hi, Thank Bob. you, Bob. It's an honor. Pleasure. So what's it like 50 years later? It's quite similar <laughs> to the beginning, Bob. We're still together. You know, some people might not know, but we it was never a breakup, never a comeback kind of thing. We've been doing about 100 shows a year for the last 50 years. Okay, but the classic question would be, when you started, did you envision that you'd be doing it 50 years later? No, I can honestly say I'm, I'm shocked myself that we're still doing it. <laughs> and really, we're on kind of a resurgence. It's been a real special last couple of years. The live show is locked in. We've been through all the ups and downs and peaks and valleys, and we've got this uh, couple of younger guys in the band now that really kicked us in the butt, our drummer, Rylan Steen, and, and uh, Steve Feckety on guitar. And then we have a good seasoned uh, solid bass player in Rich Campbell, so that five-piece is just uh, chugging along. So what do you think uh, accounts for the resurgence? Classic you know, hits. Hits help is the saying. You know? and there's, <laughs> hits help. Uh, hits help. Good alliteration. There's a, there's a lot of hits. Um, and, uh, you know, we honor those every night. So you play uh, all the hits every night. I have this equation in my head. I figure that the people that come night after night, uh, those are the people that bought these records in the millions throughout this career. Those are the people that put our kids through college. You know, our, our half of the bargain is to now go out and take this music to those people and perform it around the world, which we're very happy to do. But you were talking about a resurgence. Why do you think it's on an upswing? Well, I, I don't know if it's resurgence per se. I think it just seems like it's locked in. You know, we were always kind of like, who are these young guys that came out of nowhere? And there's always been, you know, we had a little bit of proving ourselves in the 70s and so on. But we just got into this cruising thing where we're just going to power through and keep doing what we do. It's not a, it's a simple enough formula. Try and write some decent songs and make a record every once in a while and, so maybe it's because there's been a 
We've lost a bunch of guys. I don't know. Right. The they venues, want to see, the venues, see it before everybody dies. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. And I don't want to put it that way, but we all know people our age. It's, you know, they drop yeah. off. Yeah. So, uh, was there ever a time in the fifty years that you thought, "I'm done. I'm gonna not do this." Not personally done. We we've had some challenges, as Dewey said, some ups and downs. When Dan, our original founding member, left in '77, that was a, a personal challenge he was addressing, and he did a actually a great job. But it it didn't allow for us to carry on as a three piece, so that was a bit of a hurdle. But it gave Dewey and I the kind of green light to carry on. So I can't say that I ever had a yeah, I'm out. Kind no, of the writing and stuff goes. We, we seemed to be every day we'd wake up and have some idea in the 70s, record something or this song or record a cover. And I think that aspect of that excitement, it, it's really hard to recreate that. I think any long term veteran band will say, you know, we had our these years that just seemed to couldn't do anything wrong, you know. But uh, I've never wanted to stop. We can't do anything else. We graduated from high school together. Right. Never went to college. You know, I learned my three chords, and Jerry's a schooled musician over there on the keyboards and so on. So, I mean, really, uh, realistically, we still feel comfortable and enjoy it and okay, get along. Okay. So now know? in the era of the, the Internet, there's a lot of information that didn't used to be there. But – I didn't know until I did some research. What were the exact circumstances of Dan leaving the act? Well, we were still on a pretty heavy um, series of write, record, produce, tour. And it filled the year for all of us. And Dan was having a harder and harder time making the commitment to do all of that. And we would book a tour or we would try and rehearse and he'd say, I can't make it or something. He he had some emotional challenges, to put it, I suppose, mildly. He um, He had a very stable home life with his wife, but he was wrestling with some demons and him having the time to focus on that. He went through a rebirth. He became a born again, Christian devoted the remainder of his life to doing contemporary Christian music, which we performed on when we could, when asked, but, um, he couldn't keep up the, uh, the schedule that we were doing. Now, did you see it coming? Yeah. Well, we were all thrown into the spin dryer effect, you know, with a number one record and album when we were like 18, 19, 20 years old and moved out to LA. And we we were from military families that had moved around all of our lives and had that vibe. So there was a lot to take in. And there was the usual pitfalls, drugs and women and the, the, the hectic road life, none of which were anything really unusual when you look at uh, the history of bands and everything. And it's just some can weather through some of that and some don't. And and Dan really did have a – we didn't know this even, that he had a strong Christian ra- – uh, he was raised Baptist, born – his family's all from Missouri in a, far, a little place called Farmington, Missouri. We ended up visiting out there and, you know, we, we loved Dan. And we were the three musketeers. We'd gone through high school and were laughing it up. And then suddenly we've got this thing, this – career for, for God's sake he went back to college for one semester but um, didn't take and he came back to England and Jerry and I were still in England where our parents were and so it was it was a sad time and it was a, that was the first big transition it wasn't a shock went. to answer your question we, we could right. see it I mean obviously we were all complicit in that in what we would just lump in as the 70s but it was really hitting Dan harder than it was us and uh, he had a so what was it we're looking back with all these years and now that he's passed what did he add to the band 
Well, a trio, obviously, I, I always think of like the three legs of a stool. I mean, it's a very, very stable thing. We had a democracy from day one. One of the things that happened very early on in the group was Dewey sang Horse With No Name, which was a huge hit for us. The follow-up was a song called I Need You, a ballad, which I sang. So we right away established a pattern of handing it around. It never fell on any guy's shoulders. It wasn't like a sting thing where he had right. to write and sing. Dan contributed some huge hits for us. Lonely People, Don't Cross the River. His element, apart from being a great lead guitarist, his writing kind of skewed a bit more country. So those songs tended to have a banjo on them and a just a slightly different color, which I think really rounded he it out. He was a good rock guitar player, too. Yeah, he was great. our lead guitar player, and he was our high harmony singer. And that was another feature that we had. That's, it's an alchemy that you can't really right. predict. The three voices, the blend. And... That was a magical thing. When we first sat down with our acoustic guitars and he had a song and Jerry had a song and I had a song and we started arranging and, you know, doing the usual thing, uh, getting these vo voices going. And Dan's high harmony, it was hard to recreate that. We've been lucky. Uh, okay, so once he left the act, did you change the material so you didn't require it or did you double it or did somebody else do it? We had uh, Timothy Schmidt came in a lot, Christopher Cross, right. when we got to know him, just really fine high voice singers if we needed the three-part harmony. But there's a great history of harmony that's two-part. Everly Brothers and all the Beatles stuff was built kind of on that mold. So we were very happy to be to do two-part harmony. It wasn't yeah. like a big piece missing. We were know? never going to re replace Dan, as it were, you know. Right. As, as a matter of fact, we did some audition. We Did we even audition? We did just Michael step in. Our, our guitar tech, Michael Woods, at that time, when Dan left, he'd been working with us for a couple of years and knew all the songs by heart, was a guitar player himself. A lot of guitar techs are, you know. And he just stepped right in and we said, okay, that's good. I think we were going to have auditions and he said, hey, would you guys consider letting me audition? And we said, yeah, you can have the gig. You can just have the gig. <laughs> it was just like that. We did the same thing when we, got, we had a drummer. We were just three kids on stools originally. Acoustic guitars, three, no rhythm section at all. In fact, if you listen to the first album, there's not there's hardly any drums, right, Jer? There's like uh, on Sandman, there's... Uh, Dave Atwood, an old high school guy who played drums. Out of, but when we came to L.A. and David Geffen and Elliot Roberts picked us up and we were, we were thrown into the deep end of the pool and now we're filling arenas and so on, we've got to get a band. We've got to get a thing here. You know, it was on-the-job training. And we did call some rehearsals and we ended up picking the first guy, Willie Leacox, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. He was a friend of our bass player at the time, David Dickey. And some guys had flown in to, to audition and bless their hearts, you know. In fact, one guy got uh, got a ticket for jaywalking here in Hollywood somewhere, <laughs> you know. I mean, it was really sad. But that's how professional we were. We, okay, he sounds good enough. And it showed, frankly, for a while, although Willie Leacox was a schooled drummer. He's from, his family was all big band players from Iowa, and he was good, you know. He stayed 44 years, Willie. Yeah, there you go. Okay, then why did there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't don't uh, change it if it's not broken. He, so, he just essentially retired about four okay. years ago. So let's go to the end before we go back to the beginning. What's it like to be an act with a lot of hits, known quantity, and the concept of putting out new music today? Because there are a lot of acts in the internet era. They make a new record, good, bad, or otherwise, it sinks in a day. Yeah. And in addition, if they play that new material live, that's when their fans tend to have a bathroom break. Sure. Yeah. I mean, even it's we can tough. see that. We have many albums that we can pick from to do the deeper cuts in the show. But if you're, I, I always say painters paint, yeah, musicians write, I continue to write. 
I mean, I can't honestly say that the only reason I did this was to make money off of it. It was a creative outlet, a vital creative outlet. But you're right, that dynamic, the ebbs and flows, it doesn't matter who you are. Right. Um, and I think you just have to wrap your head around it. The good news for us is that we built an incredibly strong performance base that it didn't revolve around, you know. Um, and, and we did record. experience putting out albums that we really had put the nose to the grindstone and worked hard on it, but Jerry's studio and stuff that Jerry and I had done. And, and it was disappointing when it wasn't. What, what happened? The 70s, huh? You know, it's a, it's a strange thing. You put your heart and soul into it. I don't think I put any more effort into those albums that tanked completely than I did into the ones that were huge hits. I don't know how that works, but uh, Jerry's more prolific than I as far as writing. I'm not driven to do it. In the days when we when we first signed with Warners, we had a seven-album deal. We had an album every year, the touring, everything. Capital, the same thing. Then you're motivated. You have to. You have to produce. You have right. to do something. And so I'm not doing it. Uh, to this day, I'm, I need some impetus, something. Is there a project? Right. Like, what are we doing? Even then, it's, um, it's something I really have to make myself do. So at this stage of the game, is there any plan to do a new album or new music? Because of the anniversary coming up, there's a lot of archival things. Every label that we've been on is doing a box set release. We just did a like show at the London Palladium that they film with ten cameras, and that's a that con- came out that's really a nice. Concert, that's good. Yeah. So most of this stuff is archival. Um, recently, or a few years ago, we did an album of covers in Nashville with a wonderful group of players and stuff, which was a neat experience because it didn't put the weight of writing on our shoulders. Of course. But you know, you, I'm sure you, you know, this is your business as right. much as it is you ours. Have a new, you, know. you have a new record coming out. I, I do solo, solo records every so often. It's it's kind of cleaning house a little bit. You know, I, I assemble a. A dozen tunes. If I'm fortunate to have a label that's interested, I will support it to the best of my ability. But I'm not holding my breath, you know. Okay, but you will put out another solo album at some point. Yeah, I've got one coming out in in September. And will you do it yourself, or will there be a label? I, well, it's done. But I, this one is on Blue Alon, which okay, I did my right. last, uh, and it's a lovely small boutique Isn't Rusty label. Young? Right, Rusty they, they have a lot of '70s acts. Some like you who've made it, and some that haven't. Yeah, I know. sure. He's I think got Janie Street emailed exactly, me right. Exactly. See, he's got uh, Kirk Pesk's got. Great ears, this guy who runs this. And he did an album. Uh, I did an album with him a few years back. It was just a pleasure from start to finish. And but Rusty as you Young's know, it's, a different, right it's a different time. So right? if you cut the record at home and you make a deal with Blue Alon, do they give you any money? Well, <laughs> yeah, well what, what, do you, what do you call money? Do I about? get any? First, let's start with a threshold <laughs> question. Is there any money? Yeah, right. There's, that's, enough, to there's, warrant, there's enough to warrant the effort. But okay, I think that, we, that's, yeah. okay, that's all I needed. Yeah. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's bifurcate. Let's start first with you, Jerry. So where are you from originally? I was born in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, my dad, as Dewey's, was in the U.S. Air Force. I moved to England when I was one year old. So I have no memory of Texas. Okay, your father did what in the Air Force? He was a a SAC bomber pilot. He flew B-52s during the uh, Cold War. Wow. And uh, he ended up at the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon. And when we met, he was the commander of the U.S. Air Force in the U.K., so well, he, he was so, the base I mean, commander. I know some other people with uh, military fathers, and it's not irrelevant of where you're living. It's not like growing up with a regular suburban dad. You, you, um, as anybody that grows up in the service would know that you you are denied a hometown. You are denied lifetime friends. You move from the minute from the get go. The only good news in that, well, there's quite a bit of good news. It broadens your horizons. You see the world in a much broader way than most people would uh, living in a 
in the town that they were born. But also everybody that you are with is in the same boat. You're not sitting there going, why do I feel different from all of these people? It's not like you had 10 years of some kind of stability and then your mom remarries a guy in the service or something. So we are all in that same boat. And I think it's something we shared and it, it was a bonding element rather than an alienating thing. Okay. But your father, I mean, we see movies like The Great Santini. What's it like having – it's the only thing you know. But what's it like having such a military success as your father? He was uh, – being a SAC bomber pilot, he was gone a lot. Uh, it was secret at the time, but during the Cold War, they would go out of an air base in Goose Bay, Labrador and fly around the Arctic Circle for two weeks at a time staying in the air. I mean like in the movies where they refuel yeah, them? Yeah, refuel wow. them in the air. So he would be gone for weeks and, and I we weren't allowed to even ask where he was and stuff. So there was a lot of absent dad stuff. But he was an incredibly devoted father and uh, one of our biggest fans. He kept a scrapbook from day one, and he was very proud of all of us. And in your particular case, you know, in terms of in the house, was he strict because in the military? He he wasn't. Um, He was – I have great memories of all of this, but for example, when we we got stationed in England and there was a somewhat of a welcoming parade, the, parade, the new base commander, and I had quite long hair at the time, and he said, you might want to skip that one, son. You know, <laughs> he, you know he, he wasn't the kind that said, you know, look sharp. and. Yeah. Okay, so you were one years old when you moved to London yeah. from Fort Worth, and then were you in London the rest of the time? I was there till I was five or six, and then I moved to... Um, Offutt Air Base in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, which was a SAC uh, base. And uh, we were there a few years. Then we were in Ohio for a couple. And then when he got stationed at the Pentagon, we moved to the D.C. area. And I was there till 65. And we went to Germany. We were at Ramstein Air Force Base for a year. Then went to England, and that's where I met Dewey for our last two years of high school. So you were going for the last two years of high school. Now, Dewey, what's your backstory? Well, first of all, my dad saluted Jerry's dad. Oh, my really? dad was a senior master sergeant in the Air Force. But 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 they and, knew each other. Uh, they may have. Yeah, I think so. They, you know, they probably did. It's a small yes. base. I mean, well, that when we became uh, when we broke afterwards, but right. it was a small base. It was more of an administrative base. Yeah, By then, your dad, base, yeah. his dad wasn't really flying at that point. And my dad was born and raised in Alaska. And really, got, yeah, and got. Wait, out. wait, wait. So that must have been like the twenties. It was third, nineteen thirty. Nineteen thirty. How'd he get to Alaska? <laughs> his dad was Army, as okay. it turned out. And he and his older brother, first chance they could, signed up for Uncle Art went into the Army. My dad went to the Air Force. And his first uh, stationing was in Yorkshire, England, where he met my mum. And okay. I was born. So I was born in Yorkshire, England. By the way, Jerry, you didn't mention your mom's English, too. My mother was Eng- is English. So and, he, and, and your father met her in the UK. Yeah, during the together. war, World War II. Yeah. And now, did your parents stay together? Yes, they did. And mm-hmm. yours? And mine, right. Till the, and my mother passed away in 98. But we, we did the same thing. Uh, my dad was actually at Offutt also. My dad was in communications, radar and stuff. Uh, he was in the Korean War. And we lived in several places. Biloxi, Mississippi was a training base. Well, where were you born? Born in Harrogate, Yorkshire, England. Okay. So and, you could never be president. Uh, probably not. No. <laughs> Thank goodness. But, yeah, we, I was similar to Jerry. We only stayed there a year or so and went back to this U.S. Um, and we bounced around uh, Pensacola, Florida, Long Island, New York, Biloxi twice. Omaha, coincidentally, when Jerry and I compared notes, we realized we were living in the same place at the same, same time. time. Yeah. Yeah. In Omaha. Same time. In Omaha, our dads were there because SAC headquarters is in Omaha, so that's the big Air Force base there. 
And then we were out here in California, Vandenberg Air Force Base. My dad was part of a team that fired some missiles out there in 62, 63. And San Jose, California, there's another base up there, Sunnyvale. But then we went back to England in 65 to... Um, we left San Jose. The music scene was happening in the Bay Area then. I can, that's when I was really starting to feel some stuff going on. And we moved to Norfolk, uh, England, a base there called Lake and Heath, Mildenhall. So I did my sophomore year of high school there. And then he was transferred down to London, the base where we met. And Jerry and I and Dan and the rest of the people we met and friends were there at uh, Central High, London, England. Okay, now is that an American school? Or yeah, is that, it it's is for a dependence. Um, there was another one in the heart of London called ASL, which was for more of um, kind of uh, kids, of oil companies and things. Uh, civilian, executive Civilian yeah. kids. But this was outside of London, and it was basically for the kids stationed and their parents at the base. And how many kids went to that school? It was a hundred and something, about one hundred and eighteen graduating class. Sixty nine yeah. graduated in nineteen sixty. All Quonset huts, you know. It was an oh, old really? RAF base. Yeah, yeah. It's all RAF bases that the U.S. leases. And I guess the same deal in Germany and everywhere else, Belgium. But okay, just to cover for a second, Dan's backstory was essentially the same. He came. He came the senior year. He wasn't there for the last two years. His dad was a colonel who worked in the BX system, the supply system, and. Um, he had a totally different. He'd lived in Japan and the Philippines and Pakistan, Pakistan and stuff. It's fascinating story. But we all ended up outside of London. His father was in the Air Force. Yeah, Colonel in the Air okay. Force. Okay, so you're in London in the late '60s. For someone who lives like in America, that sounds like a paradise for music fans. For American teenagers, are you kidding? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'd uh, see all kinds of great music. So and... you did partake of that. You oh, did yeah. Go to see oh, Act. yeah. We saw King Crimson every day. Or was it once every, a week? It was a, a five-day or five-night run. At the marquee at the when they first started, and we went every night to we see We were, them. like, stunned, you know, Robert Fripp, right. Greg Lake. But we saw all kinds of great music, you know. What, the anything who, else that comes to mind? Led Zeppelin, a couple times, they were just kind of firing up. Uh, I saw Jimi Hendrix at the Royal Albert Hall. That was great. Um, we saw uh, the Stones in Hyde Park in 69. Right. Oh, Brian, really? After Brian Jones yeah, died. Yeah, you know, wow. the, let, letting go of the butterflies that didn't exactly. quite fly. <laughs> you know? uh, there's a place called the Lyceum Ballroom, the Roundhouse, which we ultimately, that was when we, when we first started getting some traction. We were playing the Roundhouse. Um, uh, there was just lots of festivals. The Bath Festival was a great festival in 1970 that um, had a bunch of American acts. We wanted to go see all these American acts because they were coming over. Miss Janis Joplin. We but, saw the James Gang at the Lyceum, you know. Right. Um, Three Dog Night. Uh, Sly uh, came over. Yeah. Wow. You're in London, so everybody plays okay. London. So mm -hmm. when did both of you start playing musical instruments? Hey, I, I started piano when I was three. When, wow. we, when we were living in England, the house was a furnished house, and it had a piano in it. And I was just starting to fiddle around, and my mom thought, hey, he seems keen on this. Um, got, me some, <laughs> got me some lessons. Is and I took, I took lessons till I was 10, and then at that point, guitars seemed cooler than piano, so I switched to guitar. Well, but if you played piano, at one time you could read music. I did, you, yeah, I could read. Can you read music today? I can follow along. I can't sight read anymore. But I could when I was ten. I could read anything you put in front of me. So you were a good piano player. I was all right. Okay. You yeah, he's it. our Jerry's our musical director. Right. You know, 
put, we'd put all of the stuff in his hands. He's really great at that. And when we get into arranging and so on, um, I picked up a guitar in 1963. So to before play the surf Beatles. music. Yeah, yeah, it was in uh, Dick Dale. Dick Dale, who we, right. lost, we lost recently, yeah, and right, that was a course. sad moment for me. And I'm really glad because uh, uh, that I'd met him and seen him. We actually we Dick Dale yeah. open for us one day. But um, so it was surf music, single right. note stuff. Dee, dee, dee. I'm not schooled. I'm really the be- the worst when it comes to that. Within our umbrella, I'm comfortable. It's really tough for me to even sit down and jam with guys, but. But I, I enjoyed that, and then the Beach Boys came along right in that same time. It was right. Safaris and and um, the Chantays and uh, the Ventures. Of course. Uh, and so then it, then the Beach Boys came along, and then we moved. That that year was huge for me. It was like eighth grade or something, seventh or eighth grade, and it was the Kennedy assassination. It was Ali. Knocking out Sonny Liston. It was the Beatles, 64, there on Ed Sullivan. The thing you hear every, I'm sure, Bob, everybody you talk to, that Beatles thing on Ed Sullivan. Absolutely. And we were, you know, smitten. And now we're going to England. Oh, wow. And um, it just snowballed from there. But I never did get off my butt and get into some music theory and learn some things. You know, I was always dependent on the other guys in the band. It's and, a relative thing, you know. Right, I mean, right. it's Most so people deep. are not schooled. I, I went through a, um, a Bill Evans thing recently where I went back and listened to all of that stuff, Walsh for Debbie and stuff. And it just is so humbling when you see somebody who really knew what they were doing. And yeah. like, oh, <laughs> that's oh the I see. That's what it's for. I, I had it all wrong. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, some people, the least talent, have created some of the greatest records. Well, and it... but. I think when you say the least talent, I mean, it, it's, least, least schooled. Yeah, it's least school. I, I always think of a, like a, a guy like Bill Withers who wrote some right. of the greatest songs ever. If you just sat at a piano and went, "Sometimes in my life," you know, it's just it's, it's just this on a ladder thing. But it couldn't be a better song. It's an incredible song, but it's very simple. Okay, so at this point, you're thrown together in high school. Do you think there's any chance you're going to be professional musicians before you form the act? No, no. I I think that that curve when you change from boy, we're having a great time Fridays at the teen club to we're actually going to make a living at this. There's a story that I've told where um, we were actually going to try and make this as a profession, and my dad was a bit concerned because we'd both just graduated, and my my brother was coming over from the states, and he when he came over, he said. No, he said, when you come, I'd like you to have a word with your brother because we're not so sure this music thing is really going to pan out. <laughs> right. And by the time he got there, Horse With No Name was number one. And he said to my dad, well, what do you want me to tell him now? <laughs> well, staying, staying with that, okay, was there any of the thing your father said, hey, you got to go to college? Well, this happened so quickly for us that there, we never got to that point of, I don't know. I mean, we put out a first album and a single that went, basically number one around the world. So there was not a lot of second guessing about it. Everybody, including the label, was just over the moon, you know. See, when we get when we graduated in 69, whatever that is, June, Dan did go. We worked at the base to make some money. Hey, we got Doing a job. What? We were working in the warehouse, uh, in the cafeteria. Dan's dad, as Jerry said, was part of the uh, BX and the, the food services or something. He's Colonel Peak. So he got... Uh, us a job there in the on the base, but Dan was slated to go to college, and his family, I think, and we never really talked about it much. I mean, we were worried about the draft, of course, of course. at that point. And Dan did go off and do one semester 
Jerry and I stayed and worked at the base. I actually took a shot at drama school. I'd, I'd loved the, the school plays, and I thought, you know, England, thespians. You know, I bailed out of that after about three months. It was called the Corona Academy of Dramatic Arts. And like uh, Mark Lester, it was for kids. It was a kid's school, teenagers and so on. But I was in way over my head, and, you know, they were doing ballet and fencing and whatever, and I'm going, okay. Meanwhile, I'm talking with Jer a lot, and we're hanging out in London, and uh, that's one thing led to another. The music was still the thread. We still wanted to play some music, see some music. We were still learning. It was exciting, the scene in London, you know. And before you know it, I'm writing a couple of songs in this. I was living with another guy. My parents, my dad had retired from the Air Force, went back up to Yorkshire with my mother, who always wanted to go home, and they got a pub up there. But I stayed down in London with another kid that was going to high school, John Alcazar, and um, was strumming in the room, you know, going to the bass to work and playing my guitar and, and came up with some songs. Jerry was doing the same. And Jerry, you can pick it up there because you started getting some sessions in London. I was doing, I was, you know, you read liner notes and I, w I knew where the studios were. So I would go down and basically offer my, because I could play most things adequately. And I'd offer myself, the, what do you need, a bass, uh, keyboards? And so I started playing on some people's demos at Morgan Studios and a couple of other studios. And they would give me studio time in return. They wouldn't pay me. They'd say, you can use it from, you know, like 10 at night or something. So I started cutting some of my earlier, and it, it led to some of the earliest contacts that we eventually used in the in the business. So, yeah, But at that time, at 10 p.m. and later, were you cutting by yourself or with the other two? Well, no, not, not Dewey. No, I, I hadn't had... involved Dewey in this. I was working with a, whoever was basically hiring me from the studio. They say, are you available, you know, on Wednesday? They need a bass player, and I sure I go in and I'd play on whatever. What it about was. your gig on the bass? Well, that was kind of the segueing time when it started. This started to take over. We basically just yeah. worked the summer. You know, we drove it, a forklift and made tea for them. You got to drive a forklift. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. yeah we were tea boys too for the British because they always had British guys working with the Americans. You couldn't just. Right. It's like that thing. You got to share this thing and. All right, you two, out. Go get the tea and bring me a box of Swan, which were matches and, you know, uh, cigarettes and uh, things like that. We, we, were, we, we worked it. We realized that if you were a tea boy, you could leave early. You could go and the tea was like 10 to 10.20, but you could leave about 9.15, take people's <laughs> orders. Then you set up the tea and it's over at 10.20, but it has to be cleaned up. So we could fudge it into about two and a half right, hours. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. That's yeah, good. Those I've yank, had jobs like that. You make your own work so you don't have to work. Those yeah. lazy yank kids. Okay, what about the draft? What did you two guys it do? It was a uh, lottery by yeah, that time. By right. Then. And we had uh, pretty good numbers. Dan had a bad number. And Dan had come back by then and he, he did get the crap number i mean he was and he had to go to germany to take his physical because you had to go wherever the whatever the um area that the, the well it didn't need to be an army base and it wasn't uh, oh, we didn't have army in, in the uk that's right so. um and what happened if he, he well he had a, he had some childhood illnesses that were undiagnosed at least one apparently literally on his medical record undiagnosed what we don't want anybody with an undiagnosed disease um, so he, he got the 4F. And, do, you, and do you remember what your numbers were? I think I was in the 100s somewhere. Yeah, I think, I think I was, was like 183. I was like low something. 200s. That was uh, a good thing. I got That's the college deferment, yeah. but I remember that night. Okay, so let me be clear. When you're in high school, you're doing it on Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. 
Is that the time when you say there's a band, or really does the band come later? Right, there, Bob. No. Yeah, there was, no, there was that, a band. We, yeah. played, we played together, not all three at the same time. There was a band that Dewey and I were in, and then Dewey left, and Dan came in the band. But this, here's this the is difference. just top 40 kind of it thing. It was cover songs. Know, cover okay. songs. So I think that the thing, it changed when instead of just covers, you had to do covers, and you didn't have to, but we'd all play the hits, whatever they were. Born to be wild. But we started to rearrange Songs. If you remember when, like, Vanilla Fudge did uh, Keep Me Hanging On, they took an upbeat Motown song and turned it into a power ballad. Right. So we thought, oh, so, you know, there's really no rules. So we would take a fast song and make it into a slow song or vice versa. I think that was the transitional period between just being a cover band and writing. Creating something of our own. And are you working out? At all? Are you playing any live gigs? It's mostly at the base. There was a teen club that we played every Friday. Did you get paid for that? I think there was petrol money as we were talking about. <laughs> hey, man, okay, it was 25 so cents a gallon. You graduate from high school. That summer, you have jobs on the base. You have this exchange. You play for studio time. What's the next step? Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I had done a session for a duo that was being shopped around, a couple of English songwriters, and the guy that took him around, and I'm not sure what labels he took him to, took him to Warner's, Ian Samwell, who was an A&R guy at Warner's, and he said, I don't know, I don't hear anything. And he said, oh, what's that? Who's playing that guitar? And he said, well, actually, that's a, this American kid who was helping us do the recordings. He says, and he said, he's got his own band. And, the, and Ian said, well, bring me his band. Really? Yeah, and that's how we got into. Uh, we had that little moment with Middle Earth Records and that Dave was Dave House and was managing Dave House. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, 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 the Middle Earth Records is that the same story or a story before that? No, that's that, that story. He that guy had signed this duo and he was yeah. shopping them around. And when he took them to Warner's, they passed, but they wanted to know who that guitarist was. Okay, so he wanted to know what what happened after that. Well, we hadn't. We were now the three of us had worked up five or six songs, right. and we didn't have any tapes. So the only way to perform was to take these guitars and and play in the offices. So we went in and played a guy named Martin Wyatt, who's still wait, a wait, dear. This is at Warner. Warner UK, Warner. yeah, sixty nine. And what's the understanding with the intermediary? He'll be the label. This this Ian was a staff producer and A and R guy at Warner Brothers, and we were playing in the office of the head, for the head of A and R, guy named Martin Wyatt, and. We played basically half of the first album, Riverside and I Need You and stuff. And he has since gone on record and said it was the hardest thing he's ever had to do in the business was to keep a straight face while we came in and <laughs> right, played right. all this stuff. And he said he ran into his boss, a guy named Ian Ralphini. You might know that name. And um, he said, you'll never guess what's just walked in here, you know. And um, they signed us. Yeah, it was like, okay. wow. Yeah, well, yeah. What was it like being on your side of the fence? Did you expect this to happen well, at it, all? It was pretty amazing. I mean, I still, I'm still was numb about it. We at, right at the same time, Ian Samwell's uh, partner roommate was this guy, incredibly colorful guy named Jeff Dexter. He's in a lot of the British folklore, and he did a lot of emceeing and things at the Roundhouse. Isla White. Isla White. He introduced the artists. And he got us on a couple of club shows, the Country Club, and this guy Bob Harris. Have you ever heard that name, Bob Harris? He's a DJ in England, BBC. He got us on the BBC doing just what Jerry's saying, those three or four songs that we had worked up, got really tight harmonies, had all our acoustic guitar parts, just three of us sitting there. He got us on the BBC, and that caused a little bit... I don't know where all the buzz comes from or how, like Jerry says, Martin Wyatt got some stuff going around. Hey, these guys are good. We can we got to sign these guys or whatever. And getting on the radio. But that was all super like, wow, what's going on? It's happening around us by some kind of supernatural force. Okay, let's go back for a second. Before you went and played Warner for the audition, mm -hmm. how much rehearsing had you done? We had just learned these tunes at our houses, our individual homes, in our cars. In our car. We would rehearse in the cars. We we really, I mean, we'd been in bands. We knew that this sounds pretty good. But it had become the era of the singer-songwriters. We'd all sold our electric gear and the amps and things, so we all had acoustics. But uh, I think another thing that this guy that was running us around town, he said, okay, now tomorrow we're going to go see Atlantic. Right. And I remember we played for Phil Carson at Atlantic. This is 1970. 
And we didn't realize that if you're playing for one label and they're interested, you're not supposed to go to right. all the other ones. So they were paying they, for the demo. So right. Phil, yeah. Phil would be meeting with Ian from Warner's and say, we got these great guys, America, going into the studio. And they said, we've got them going this year. So we were cutting the same songs for all the different labels around town, making basically the same demo. Tightening for, up our arrangements for the master recordings. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so you had those two demo deals. Any other demo deals? We did. We went to Dick James, DJM, right. uh, which is at the time was kind of where Elton was just right. starting that, yeah. and we cut things there. We went into Chalk Farm for Warner Brothers, which is a great old demo studio that a lot of the, well, reggae, the reggae music, yeah, and Desmond the burgeoning and stuff. reggae stuff, yeah, it's common. So music. we cut those same songs three or four times and kind of honed them down. So when Warner's pushed go, we said, "That's great to be," you know, because it was obviously Joni was on reprise, it was Warner reprise, and um, Neil was on. You know, it just seemed like a great right. fit. And uh, Ian was assigned to be a co-producer, but basically just a guy to watch the budget. Go in and just capture what they're doing. What they're doing is already fine. If you can just get that on tape, the budget was 3,000 pounds, which was seven and a half grand. Wait, wait, just to be clear, this is to make the record of the, the demo? The album. This really? is to make the album. So we went into um, Morgan, no, a um, Trident, Trident Studios yeah. on Water Street in, in Soho, and... And because Ian, Ian Samuel was actually a bit of a legend, he'd written Move It for Cliff Richard. He was kind of woven into the London music scene. He's an older, yes, seasoned veteran. And he, he said, I've got a great engineer, a guy named Ken Scott. He's just been working with David Bowie and stuff. So Ken engineered the first album. We did the whole thing for 7500 bucks. So you did for 7500 bucks. How long a period of time was that? About three weeks, two, three weeks, right? Yeah. We had we, David Lindley, of all people, who we didn't know from Adam right. at the time, Came in, uh, I think it was, he was Jeff who, he was with Terry Reid. He was Reed. playing with Terry Reid in London. He, this was before Jackson. And so right. Terry Reid was the next, as you probably know, that right. was going to be the next big thing on numerous times in his in his life. And Lindley was available and played. And then they brought in this percussionist named Ray Cooper. Of course, who played with Elton. Yeah. yeah. And stuff. And so those are the only two additional guys. Okay, so essentially you're saying you produced the record yourself? We co-produced it, yeah. And it's then, co-credited to us. Okay. Yeah. Are you happy with the result? Yeah, I think we. Yeah, I think so. I think the original recordings are are, are good. You know. Okay, because a lot of people say I went in the studio and I'm not happy. You know, yeah. I got pushed around yeah. or I was anxious. Okay, so that you make that record, and but how long does it take to come out? The the one of the interesting things about that was that record didn't include Horse with No Name. So the original British release came out, and it was getting airplay. And same cover? Same cover, same everything. But here's one, something that the label did that would never happen now. They then said to us, what else you got? We're not sure there's a single. <laughs> now, they just invested in, and released the album, but we went back in the studio a month or two later to cut a few new things. And that's when we cut Horse. And that... Um, was released as a separate thing. The album and the single were two different releases in the UK. Okay, so you cut the record. Are you now playing live? We're still doing these little club jaunts up and down. Now we've got a van, a Ford Transit van with three airplane seats in there. We've got a roadie guy, Claude, and a little WEM PA system yeah. and our acoustic guitars. And Jeff Dexter has getting us bookings in colleges and pubs and we're going up and down the M1. And we, we did we went to Holland. He got us a, a little tour of all these clubs around Holland. And then we got put on the Cat Stevens European leg of his tour. Wow. And was, at that point, it was just the three of you playing? It was just the three, just of three of us. Right. Now, we, we had actually evolved to having a bass guitar that Jerry and Dan would switch off on. 
So on certain arrangements, it'd be two acoustics and a bass. I always, I also always remember we got this one-off date in Holland opening for the band, and we thought, oh, this is fantastic right. concert, the concert the ball. Yeah. And we were playing with some British bands that were just starting. Brinsley Schwartz, right? Nick Lowe came out of uh, Brinsley Schwartz, and um, Curved Air, which, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, what's wrong with me? The um, police's drummer. Uh, drummer for Curved Air. I know Curved Air. Uh, yeah, Stuart. Stuart. Um, yeah. Stuart Copeland. 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 Yeah. Was in Curved Air. He wasn't actually the. He was added to Curved Air, but. Right. And Linda Lewis was a great singer, a right. uh, young singer, and she also sang with Elton. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they, that was our little kind. They were all Warner's acts, uh, burgeoning, you know, upcoming acts. So we'd play shows with all of them. So before you recut, they cut the additional tracks. What was the plan? Well, they, they thought no about. Plan, Bob. They thought about. I need you. I need you. Sounds kind of like yeah, a hit, maybe. Was... But I don't know. It's a, it's a slow song. What else have you got? So that's what put us okay, in. Okay, before you get there, this was the dark ages. You made a deal with Warner. Did you have a music attorney? The, oh, I think boy. there was somebody. I think there was somebody legal, but clearly they. It was Warner Brothers Music. You know, the publishing was totally integral to the deal. If you want to cut right to it, yeah, we lost all that stuff. Anyway, and to it, this it, day, they own it. It got worse actually. Cause yeah. David How did it get worse? Well, David. Geffen, okay, we'll, we'll wait for yeah. Geffen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so now they say go back in the studio. With cut some additional yeah. stuff. They, so then how does that work Well, out? they picked, they said, we like this horse song. And it was actually called Desert Song. We couldn't get into Trident. So we went to Morgan, which I knew because I'd worked there a lot. And we had a different engineer. I think we might have had Philip McDonald on that. And we went in to cut um, a couple of tunes, but feature Horse With No Name. All came out great. Ray Cooper did some percussion. And we put it out as a single, maxi single. I think it had two songs on the B side. And it went right to number one in the UK. Okay. So, although I've read a little bit about it, tell my audience the gestation, how uh, A Horse With No Name came together. It was, um, I, I was playing around with um, tunings, different tunings, David Crosby. And needless to say, you haven't even mentioned what about us being these knockoff CSN guys, right? Well, we'll get a well, little into <laughs> that. But... Um, but Certainly. isn't it the best people steal? Isn't it's, that what it is? Well, sure. Yeah, it's beautiful. Right. Well, we were just uh, we just picked apart those records. The first right. first two CSN records, the first three Neil Young solo albums. I mean, we were Buffalo Springfield fans and Birds fans, and and Joni Mitchell is incredible. So right. they were really right in our face in the right at that time. So so yeah, I picked around to find my own little weird tuning. Again, being unschooled. It was kind of unorthodox what I did, and I found some chords, different fingering, and just got those things going. And, and uh, I was always an outdoor guy, always loved nature, those travels around the U.S., the desert, places we'd lived, Biloxi, swamps, snakes, whatever. So, uh, and it's rainy in England, and it really was rainy. It was really a, a tough summer, I remember that year. And so I just write, you know, wrote some imagery, some desert the heat was hot, <laughs> right. the plants and birds and rocks and things. And pretty simple, Bob. It's just a travelogue. I mean, it uh, it turned into a, a bit of an environmental thing that was going on. We were passion teenagers and saved the planet, you know. And uh, so uh, under the cities, you know, lies a heart made of ground, but the humans will give no love. And that was it. And the la-la's. And whatever, uh, so... Um, so the re- song was written how far in advance of the recording? Pretty, cl- pretty uh, close. Pretty close. Mm-hmm. 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 Okay, and did you write it for the recording? 
No, no. I mean, that we like I said, we were writing kind of, it was a second nature now. When you go back to your room or whatever, the distractions weren't as much as they seem to be as you get older <laughs> and your families and stuff. There was a lot of dead air. We have, Certainly it was the analog age in more than one way. Life was slower and whatever. So there's a lot of strumming in your room and woodshedding. And uh, so, so it was have, going on at the time. Do you have any idea when you wrote it this was going to be a gigantic hit? I didn't. I thought it was more of a, a novelty song, if you will. My mother loved it. I've always said, Mom, when she... Had the ears. Yeah, yeah she had the ears. But, but we were casting our fate to the wind. These decisions were going to be Warner's. We did... We did agree that I Need You had the most solid right. universal shot at being the first single. And, of course, Best Laid Plans, uh, someone said, well, let's see what else they've got. And when, when So they had not released I Need You as a single? No, no, no single. They put the album out, right. and the album was getting some airplay. And... It, like these, this next batch hadn't been written. It wasn't like, oh, we should have cut right. it for the album. We were just, as Dewey said, writing all the okay, time. Okay, then, of course, hitting the obvious point you've heard your whole life, people thought it sounded like a Neil Young record. Yes. Were you conscious of that when you cut it? Yes and no. Like I say, it felt like uh, that music was running through our veins and we were inspired by it. And the tone of my voice, I... I, was I leaning that way? I don't know. It's like people who sound like Bob Dylan or they sound like Neil, you know. Um, it's it's a gray area for me. You know, my voice has evolved since then, for one thing. Literally, when we were teenagers, we had these kind of younger voices. We listened to our, our old recordings. It's like, that doesn't even sound like me anymore, <laughs> you know. So uh, I don't know, but um, I love Neil Young and and still do uh, his music and the. Well, uh, you know that once the record in America, which is my viewpoint, and I bought the first album right when it came out. Once that became a giant hit, there was some backlash. Sure. sure. Oh, you, there was a lot you, of backlash. Did you feel the backlash? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And sure. also, um, Neil, who we'd been following since the start of Buffalo Springfield, had three or four solo albums that had got to the point of harvest. Right. So Harvest and Heart of Gold are coming out, and America's coming out with this song that, in theory, kind of sounds a bit like him. Our bass player always likes to point out: if you look at the chronology, Horse was before. Of course, it was before, but that's picking, you know, picking it apart. Um, but yeah, clearly, uh, it would be hard. As, and the irony is that he finally got a number one record, and he was. Knocked off after one week by horse. But one that sounded like him. His dad, apparently, in his book, says his dad said, called Neil, hey, like your new song. But, <laughs> okay, but you know, I, I just quickly on that yeah. one, too. I just want to say that I know we never took things personally, really. I mean, the career has been here this long. We were still going to pursue our path. We weren't going to be knocked off our our trajectory, if you will. And I understand people protecting their heroes. A lot of Neil Young fans thought it was a direct ripoff, and you know, and and I, I can I understand when people are trying to protect their own heroes, or or they think that this is a you know scandalous. But uh, Neil never said anything. He was a, we ended up in the same office with him, although he's a very private man. We right. can't say he's a friend or we know him closely. Right. But he was always cordial to us. And okay, let me go to a personal note. Tell me the backstory of Sandman because that was my favorite song on that album. 
Sandman was, uh, it, to, to be honest, those A minor chords, when right. we were in high school, we were doing a Bee Gees song called... We were doing Mining Disaster. Mining right. Disaster. And it was, dun, dun, you know, in the event of something happening. Do you remember right, that right, song? Right. And we would segue into Sandman. we put him as a Oh, measure. really? Yeah. So Sandman, and um, that was another one that I was sitting there thinking, lyrically at least... I have a lot of ambiguous lyrics, some okay. that don't connect. I'm sure every writer throws in lines that, what does that have to do with anything, you know? The Tropic of Sir Galahad or Alligator Lizards in the Air. But, uh, but it, I was, we were definitely focused on the Vietnam situation, and there were young airmen at the base and so on. And, and you've been here, I've been, I've been here, you've been there, we ain't had no time to drink that beer. And it was, a, it was a, an homage to some degree. I'd heard reports of a guy saying that he couldn't, he, was, he had insomnia, he was in Vietnam, he was on, in some jungle situation and just could not sleep at night. So running from the Sandman kind of a image came into my mind. And, uh, and then the chorus, and that was, that was the most edgy song, I guess, on the first album. Right. Although Here was a great song. I don't, I don't know if you know the right. song Here on that album which we play to this day, and it's gotten stronger and stronger in the set, I think. Do you ever play Sandman? Yeah, every, we, play, every that. Night, we yeah. play that every night. Okay, good. I'll see it on Friday night. <laughs> yeah. Yay! Okay, all right. So um, let's go back. You cut with horse with no name, and a lot of times, not all the times, in the process of doing something, you go, holy shit, I have something great here. Was that the case at all? The, you know, Warners, I remember saying, because we played them three or four things, and they said, well, it's definitely that desert song, because it was called the desert song. And I said, okay, fine, which is a, an early lesson of sometimes you should listen to the label because they are the people that are going to be out on the street. They're going to be making the calls. It's, so um, we basically played it and arranged it as we did. Ian, the, uh, who was in the chair, said, well, we got to change the name because, um, you know, there's an opera. In the right. somewhere. So uh, he said it should be – did he say horse and no Yeah, I think it, it, he said so, it should be a horse But I think we were all pleased with it. It, it wasn't like, ah, well, that's it. You there know? was no debate. It, no, we were making a single. It was, the, it was designed to – we're going to come so up. So how long single. after you cut it does it come out? Within a month. Pretty quickly. Yeah, pretty Everything and then started. it takes off immediately? Well, the machine kicked in. I mean, they got us on top of the pops, which is like – that was the crowning thing in, in, in England for your listeners who aren't younger, maybe. There's two TV stations over there, BBC One and BBC Two, and I guess ITV. And Top of the Pops was what every kid, you know, 7.30 on a Thursday night or something would, would uh, you know, get around the TV to see the latest stuff. And we got on that twice, I think. Yeah. And whatever was on Top of the Pops, it was obviously a... The fix was in a little bit because it was a, such a controlled audience that whatever was on top of the pops would miraculously appear in the charts, you know, yeah. in the next week or two. Okay, while this was happening in the UK, what was happening in America? What you, what Warner's signed in the UK had nothing to do with Burbank. It was an it was an uh, its own isolated kind of company, except that it was responsible for all of the American content. So reprise and everything would be Sinatra. It was Kinney and all. Records, actually. Yeah, it was at, that at the time. time owned by the car car park company Kinney, and um, so for them to sign a few acts like they did with us, it didn't mean at all that Burbank would even listen to it. But because we were called America, and because the album had done well, and now we had a number one record, they said, "Yeah, maybe we should." We should think about that. But would they come over and do a club tour? We'll put it out if they'll come over and do a club tour. 
And I love this part of the story. We said, well, sure. I mean, we're married. Right. We'd love to go over there. We hadn't been so back to the U.S. for five they, or six years. Right? Warner said, well, send us the parts. We'll press it up and everything. So they sent them the parts for the single, you know, because it was right, pressing. And sent them the parts for the album. And they just hit go. And there was about 100,000 things pressed before they even realized that the single wasn't on the album. <laughs> Yeah. So the earliest of the release was, hey, wait a minute, you know, yeah, that, that song's not on this Where's album. that horse thing? Oh. Um, but we came over and they booked us basically in clubs all, you know, the bottom line, right. the main point, Bitter End. Bitter End, uh, yeah. Bitter End. Um, um, and in D.C., which... The, uh, 930 um, Club. No, no. no um, main point, uh, oh, the Cellar Door. Cellar Door. Cellar Door, okay. And, yeah. and we were opening for the Everly Brothers. And uh, Don and Phil had um, put a great band together, which, by the way, had Warren Zevon on keyboards wow. and Wadi Wachtel on guitar. And this was February of 72, and Horse blew up. So there was a line around the block to see these 18-year-old kids from the U.K. who were doing 30 minutes. Are they and British? <laughs> Phil and Don would come out, and everybody would leave. So they got a little pissed. It had nothing to do with us, but it wasn't what they had in mind. The next week, we were in a place called Lenny's on the Turnpike outside of Boston. And when we got there, we were told that Don had got sick and that they weren't going to be coming and that we were going to be the headline. We said, well, we don't really have a whole show. And he said, it's okay. We've got this kid out of college, uh, Jay Leno. He's a comic. He's going <laughs> to yeah. do oh, 20 boy. minutes or so. I know. It's crazy. So it? it blew up pretty quick. And by the time we got to LA, we did the whiskey, not the troubadour, because Doug at Weston at the troubadour had this thing about options. And if you right. So we did the whiskey, sold that out for a week. And it wasn't, it wasn't number one by that point, but it was like number two. It was on its way. Right. And so that week, you know, we had Brian Wilson and we did, everybody. That was, that was when the, the, you know, the spin dryer started. Right. When we flew into New York City, first time any of us had done the limos. And, oh, my gosh, you know, and we meet Todd Rundgren up at the Warner's office in New York. And we go to Manny's and get to buy new guitars. I mean, it was like it was a candy store thing. We're going to Max's Kansas City and seeing Warhol and all that. Right, right. It all was those legendary things. It was fantastic. I mean, we really and we stuck close to each other because we hadn't been in the U.S. for so long. And you know, we live pretty simple lives in the military. You move around. You've got this cloistered kind of a vibe. And there we were, on our own, wildly uh, checking it all out. And, and like Jerry said, by the time we get to to uh, L.A., we're at the Whiskey, and we're staying at the Hyatt House. Led Zeppelin had just left there, and there was still some hangers-on in the lobby <laughs> from the Zeppelin tour, I think. Um, so we and, did all that stuff. And know. Warner's had a hit. I mean, this was clearly a huge hit. So now we had the entire machine behind us, and we're in limos going everywhere. And you could hit the radio station. You know, it was buttons then and switch. And you could hear it on two or three stations at the same time. You'd hear it and go, God, it's on KLOS. And you hit it. We got sick of it real quick. <laughs> but where were you the first time you heard it on the radio? Well, that was in England. England. Yeah. yeah. So what was that like? It's pretty yeah, cool. I mean, that BBC, was cool. You know? it was, I, it, again, it, it felt like an out-of-body thing at that point. You know, it was like, once, once you get your, your land legs and you're going forward and you're putting out new releases, you're looking for it and you want to hear it on the radio and it's a, it's a validation. But at that point, we didn't know what we were validating at all. It's, wow, it's on the radio. Okay, so how do you hook up with Geffen Roberts? We would go see all of these acts when they came to London. So Joni would come in, Neil come in and play Royal Festival Hall and stuff. So now that we're part of the Warner's camp, we've kind of got a little bit of an in. We can get 
backstage and stuff. Elliot Roberts came over with um, Joni to do some dates, and I think did he, he pull he, us aside? He or? was in the he was in the Warner's office, and he would said, "I introduced myself," or he introduced himself, and and we got talking, and he sort of said, "Yeah, you know, we're putting together this band called the Eagles, some players back." And you know, we were just you know, all all ears and asking about Joan. Joni had played the Festival Hall, this fantastic show, and so had Neil a couple of weeks before or whenever it was. So we'd seen their artists, and really, it was amazing. But he left. There was no pitch at that point. I was living with my girlfriend's family at that time, soon-to-be wife, and get a call about 3 in the morning. So he... He wasn't even dealing with the time zones, you know, and it was, it was David Geffen's secretary saying, "I've got David Geffen on the line," and he, he said, "We're interested. We'd like to. We think we can do better for you." And the pitch was on. And we remember we had this relationship with Jeff Dexter and Ian Samwell. They were so-called managers, but there was nothing. And we'd just been back in the states for that club tour, and we're chomping at the bit to go do another tour. And we were literally on a plane within, a, I had some stuff to tie up. Jerry and Dan, you went over first. Yeah, he said, well, we'll send you tickets. And we didn't tell the label. We snuck out of London. <laughs> it was like, And really? we moved into Geffen's house. And Joni was staying at the house. And Derek Taylor, I don't know if you know the, yeah, whole, of course. the legend of Beatles Derek, Pumps. but it was a dear friend of he ours. He was at us. Warner Brothers. Yeah. And they were having a panic. Where's our number one act? We can't get him on the phone. And after a day or so, Derek knew that we had gone to, the, to Geffen. And so he finally, in a meeting, said, everybody calm down. They're in L.A. with, you know, in shock. Oh, my God. But we moved into Geffen's house, and uh, he said, look, we're going to change a few things here, and which they did. Uh, what were yeah, the things you changed? Well, we were all American. I'd never been to California in my life until we played the whiskey. That was my first time ever. But he said, this is where you belong. I mean, this is an office. We've got an incredibly creative thing going on. You should be a part of this. So uh, we agreed, to be uh, honest. And, and it just... was the classic, we, we do this with a handshake, there's no contracts. Uh, David had a real way with him. He was a very personable guy. He was uh, full of energy, exciting. He was like 29 years old then, right. I think, something like that. And there we were in the middle of it all, up in the Hollywood Hills house in a swimming pool. And uh, it was just, we were just, you know, bowled over. And ultimately he said, you guys need to get an apartment here pretty soon. And we, and we immediately started, yeah, we lived on King's Road right there off the strip. We'd walk up to the Rainbow and the whiskey and everything. But we had to start a new record. It's time. We had this, we had music that was, we were prolifically putting out or, or writing stuff. He got us into uh, the record plant using uh, Hal Blaine and Joe Osborne from The Wrecking Crew. Oh, my gosh. We got our, that was our first rhythm section. Right. Before we got Willie Lee Cox and David Dickey, we talked about earlier. So we're in there working, you know. And meanwhile, David is busy on the phone, I presumably, because I am was as naive as they get. We didn't, like our earlier discussion, there was no attorney there telling, don't let them do this, don't do that, do this. In fact, in reality, we had... David is the one who set us up with a legal firm and a business management firm who we're were still his with, firms. Yeah, we're still with those firms. And, and he did re, um, renegotiate the record deal. That's and, a big deal. And at that time, unbeknownst, again, this is all hindsight, and it's water under the bridge, and I'm not going to—it's too easy to get to feel bad, but 
he could theoretically have negotiated our publishing back. We had a million-selling number one record that puts you in the driver's seat, and potentially um, we would have that today. But he did, he did negotiate a, an advance, a big, substantial advance. Anything over $100 was big to me <laughs> in those days, you know. And, and we started the second album, and we signed the new record deal, and that was good, and we were off to the races. But um, it's all in retrospect that we could have done better. We could have, would have, could have, should have. But I think it was all for the better. His, his cachet, his clout, us being in that lookout management office, and he was a powerful man even then, and look where he is now, right? Uh, we benefited from all of that and from being in that room in that building with all of those artists. And in a, in a strange way, I look back, we were these young kids, wet behind the ears, but David was putting his artists in front of us on those first tours. Jack, uh, J.D. Souther opened the first tour. We're filling big rooms, put one of your other artists in front. Jackson, he, he opened for us on the second tour. I thought we were just so lucky to have these guys out there on the road, but, but it worked in reverse, too. We, we were able to... Um, to expose them to some bigger crowds. We'd seen Jackson opening for Joni in, in England, and I think I saw him open for uh, Laura Nero, too. I saw him open for Laura Nero. Uh, she used to play every Christmas at the Fillmore East. Sure. And that's one of yeah. the few times where you didn't even know who he was. Of course. And he yeah. played solo acoustic, and you go, yeah. wow, that's something. You're waiting yeah. for the record to come out, because normally if you don't know the music, you can't hear it. Well, yeah, Geffen exactly. was uh, Laura, too, you know, exactly. so that's kind of where he yeah. cut his teeth on the thing. And, Another and thing was they also had a very protective nature. It was no longer the thing of how can we get our people out in front of the people. It was like, you don't get to talk to Neil. Yeah, you don't get that. to talk to Joni. So we benefited from that in that at the time with a number one album and single, by the way, there was a lot of you know, trying to get to us. And they kind of put up a wall and said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're all too cool for that, man. Right. <laughs> we didn't go to the Grammys when we were the, when we won uh, Best New Artist of 72. That, he that told year. you not to go? He didn't so much. No, he would never verbalize that. But it was a general vibe. You know, right, the Grammys were a joke. Uh, that's, that's the establishment, man. Right, right. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. 
I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's it's always the um, best new artist is always the first award. Right. And believe it or not, 72, it was in Nashville. The Grammys were in Nashville. And we were told we were going to go because we had a night off. And our year, by the way, it's just a fantastic year, was ourselves, the Eagles, Loggins and Messina, John Prine, and Harry Chapin. Now, normally, Best New Artist doesn't really get that strong of a right. grouping. That, that, that's and unbelievable. And so we thought, at the last minute, they said, no, you're not going. You're, we're not going. Okay, well, we'll just watch it on TV. And they said, <laughs> and before we announce the winner, here's the nominees, Loggins and Messina. Curtain opens, and they do Your Mama Don't Dance or something. And we thought, oh, well, that's why we're not right. going. They're there. They must be winning. And then the winner was America. And Dusty Springfield took the stage to accept <laughs> accept the Grammy for America. Because they have people just, we need you to stand by in case somebody's not here. Or something. Right. And she said, I bet the lads are very happy, you know, which we were. British artists. Where, where did you put the Grammys? Where are they today? You know, because we weren't there. It took a few weeks, and a box showed up on my doorstep with those three dreaded words, <laughs> some assembly required. <laughs> and you had to put the Grammy together. You had to, It came in pieces. You had to screw the, uh, the Wooden bell. Wooden base. Yeah. Yeah, you had to put it together. Yeah. And uh, it's still on my bookcase. I ended Yours? up, mine got damaged. The original one was wood. I noticed there was a dis- display at LAX recently with all the various right. shapes and sizes. And I ended up having, mine got damaged. I wrote a letter, hey, can I get a new one? It was like you had to really, you had to certify, you know, get a certified letter and a picture of your broken one and all this. And I got a, a newer one with the um, black onyx base or whatever it is. But it's a, it's a, a treasured Okay, award. so you make the second record and you make it, who's the producers on that? We did that one We ourselves. did. Yeah. And you're happy with the second record? Yeah, I mean, we again, we had such a talented rhythm section. It it really went very smoothly. We were in Studio A at the record plant. Stevie Wonder was in B the entire time, so we got to go in and watch him do Intervisions or uh, Music Talking, Talking Book or whatever right. it was. Okay. Just an incredible time. And that album came out, and Venture Highway was a hit right out of the door. Right. So we cleared that sophomore you know, jinx. that jinx. We we had that in the Don't Cross the River, which is a song of Dan's. We had two large hits. And we met Henry Diltz and Gary Burden, who were doing the covers yeah. for a lot of those guys. And 
and we t- took a trip up to Big Sur and hung out at the at the Esalon Institute, and we just got California eyes big time, you know. Okay. Well, well, you know, for those of us who are living in the East Coast, we had no idea there was a, you know, Ventura Freeway, whatever. <laughs> yeah. How did yeah. that come up? Well, that's another one I wrote, uh, uh, sort of fantasizing in England. I'd written that roughly at around the same time as Horse With No Name, within a month or two. And again, it was dredging up this imagery from when I lived in California. And our family had driven up and down, down to L.A., uh, I don't know if you know where Vandenberg Air Force Base is, but it's like Santa Maria, Lompoc, uh, midway up the coast. Right. And so I would, and this was, again, it was 63, because uh, I remember the assassination of, of the president and all that. And so the surf scene was on, the free wind blowing through your hair. And vent- I remember we pulled over, flat tire. I looked up at this freeway sign that said Ventura something or another. Right. And it's just stuck in my head. I, I wonder about that. Sometimes I was thinking the other day about surf music, the ventures. Right. And the word Ventura. It was literally about the word Ventura because I didn't have any experience. And, and highway right. is just what I call the road, you know. Right, right, right. But there is a Ventura freeway. There's a Ventura boulevard. There's a town of Ventura. There, actually, some segment of the Highway 1 is called Ventura Highway. There's a little piece of it or something that... Uh, but so any, it all adds anyway. up. Okay, that's the second album. Everything's good. You're on the road. Everybody's happy. Who's the agent? Do you remember who the agent was? Alan Fry. Alan Frey at, at um, I see. IFA, Internet, International Famous. Famous. Right. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. and now we're at the third album. Yeah. That's when we kind of, we had our, we're big now, and we're going to spend more time and, we had stuff. four four hits. We had four charting because yeah. Horse and I Need You, right. the first venture. So we were pretty established. Jared, we've got these apartments on King's Road. We're all living in the same building. Some guys from Three Dog Night and stuff were in there and some actresses and things. But you set up a studio. You had Jerry was always uh, on the front end of getting the equipment right. and stuff. We were able to afford things more, and we started demoing some stuff. The album became Hat Trick, right? three in a row. And the title song, Hat Trick, was a pretty ambitious um Thing that the three of us wrote together. Up until then, we each brought our song to the table. This is mine, this is mine, this is yours. But we collaborated on that one track. And um, it was a long time in the studio. We were producing ourselves. We got different players in. We got Joe Walsh came in and played on a song called Green Monkey. And we had uh, Carl. We'd met the Beach Boys by then. And we were big Brian Wilson freaks, still are, and loved, loved the Beach Boys. They've been our mentors to some degree for these decades because... We then were opening for them quite a bit, but um, it 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 dread, dragged on a, a bit more than it might have. Um, the recording, you mean? Yeah, yeah. And, and we took it on ourselves. And don't ask me how we fell for this song by a guy named Willis Allen Ramsey called Muskrat Candlelight. Okay, there was a very famous record mm-hmm. that everybody seemed to. So you had that album? Yeah, we did, yeah. and it was produced by Leon Russell. Produced yeah, on, that on, on Shelter. On Shelter. Records. Yeah. And we really loved this song. We, By the way, we're still like those days with our albums, our vinyl on the floor, putting stuff on. Hey, you got to listen to this one. I'm down in my apartment listening to some album, take it up to Jerry's. Hey, listen to this song. We're doing that. So we're still immersed in whatever releases are going on. And this song jumps out. And we just said, let's work that up. We had done one other cover on the second album, John it, Martin. Yeah, John Martin, too. John Martin was another guy we played with in England. We forgot to talk about him because he was, he was something, too. Fantastic guy. Um, 
and we done we done his song called uh, Head and Heart. But now here's another cover song. David Geffen and Is Elliot. That love me with your yeah. head and heart. Now you were the f- I heard your version first. Yeah, did yeah. you? Oh. Because uh, I think Clapton did it. Did Clapton, Clapton did do it, that yeah. one? No, he did May You Never, I think. Yeah, somebody well, else had, somebody much later, like 20 or 30 years yeah. later, had some action. I'd have to remember. Yeah, John wrote some great stuff. He's a He was a tragic figure in the end. He didn't uh, fare well in his life at the end. But... So now we've cut the song. We've changed it to Muskrat Love. We each sing a verse. We were collaborating a lot, and it fit into our set pretty nice. It was acoustic in that vein. And the office didn't like it, I don't think. They didn't. They wondered, first of all, why are you recording so much? Right, right. Leave all that money on the table. Yeah, yeah. I guess that was, yeah. And uh, just, just for... Uh, for the sake of it, it did become a huge hit with Captain and Tennille. You're right. So whatever our senses were or our radar, it was a song that, that went on to be a number one record. But so now we've, we're fallible. Our record now is not didn't do as well the third album. Muskrat didn't do as well. In, in, we'd had two platinum back-to-back or double platinum albums. This one didn't go gold, so it, it kind of caused a... There was a ripple in the force. Yeah, they're, okay, that's it. They're done. Um... And that was Hat Trick. It, it kind of came and went. We toured behind it and did what we were doing anyway. It was the fourth album that changed things with George Martin, of course. That's when Okay, so obvious. Well, let's go back. Before Hat Trick is not as successful, you're working in a, amongst a group of superstars. Did you feel you were on their level? In some cases, you were selling more records, or did you feel slightly inadequate? Well, when you're comparing yourself <laughs> yeah. to Neil and Joni, I, I think yeah. you would be wrong to do to take any other uh, stance. It, it, it was an honor to be just in their circumference, I think. But, yeah, that, um, that's really what it felt like. Like, uh, you know, yes, there were times when I don't think I'm supposed to be here, you know. <laughs> right. It's only in retrospect that you go, well, but you were, you were there. Right, you right, were right, producing right. this stuff. You were part of that room. And everybody's in their, bands are all in their own little bubbles. You know, we travel around here, pass each other in the night, and this guy's that, and that band's doing that. And we're all in our own little heads, you know. And so were the Eagles were doing their things. I would go over to some sessions or play cards with those guys and get to know them. They were all from different worlds. You know, JD. What, so so it, in retrospect, we were just part. It's like high school. It's like. Life is like high school. Well, they yeah. say show business high school with money. Yeah. yeah. There's the big men on campus right. and the cheerleaders and the nerds and the jocks. And it's kind of like that's what it was, everybody. So there's the big powerful, you know, there's Neil Young. There's David Crosby. Crosby's always been a, a yeah, dear from, friend. From day one, we, we met David at – we met Crosby at Geffen's house. And you would think maybe they could be – you know, and David is – it had pretty much a Acid already tongue. <laughs> yeah, had, had a good tongue on him. The world's most opinionated man, yeah, he man. Did. But he was from day one, and to this day, we're still in touch. And uh, he's very out. supportive. Yeah, he's a great really guy, yeah. okay. So, how do you decide to work with George Martin after the third album hadn't done well? We thought of all of these pieces, we we certainly have to do the touring. We want to do the writing. Maybe it's the production that we could turn over to somebody else. Made a list. We always say about we made this list, and of which George was the top of the list. But to be honest, I can't really remember what that list was. You know, I think maybe Roy Halley or some of the good engineers from that era. But we had George at the top because we, being Beatle fanatics, knew exactly where his hands were on those songs. We knew that the string right. chart in Eleanor Rigby was George had written this thing. We, you know, we had followed like the world. 
as those records had evolved. And we were pretty clear on what, uh, what he contributed. It turned out that he was in L.A. for Live and Let Die. He was nominated with Paul for the soundtrack right. to the James Bond film. And so he was available for a meeting. And he sat down and he said, I have to tell you, lads, um, I'm not sure what a producer does. He says, I can tell you what I do, but the term is such a broad term. Right. And there are so many ways to approach it. I know what I do. We were a multi-platinum act right. with number one record and, and follow-up hits. It wasn't like we were unknown. He was looking for things to do. He was starting to do things like Jeff Beck and Paul Winter, Winter Concert. C-Train. C-Train. He did. So he said, no, this sounds like it would be a good fit. The only thing I ask is, would you be willing to come to England? Because I've built a lovely facility, Air, Air Studios. He was no longer at EMI. And he said, I really can't be gone that long. Because he looked at our previous hat trick schedule, which was months. And he thought, oh, if, if well, I'm we committing to that. We languished in the studio on that so one. So we said, hell yes, we'll go to, you know, we're both, Dewey and I are both half English. We took it, at, 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 you know, why not? So uh, game's on. We, we headed over there. And when we got to air, he said, now, look, I've held two months. I'm not saying that we need to be done by that time, but we'll see how it goes. But I've got two months held. And we were done with that album in 13 days. We did the entire record mixed, mixed. We prepared ourselves. You know, we weren't going to go over there and waste his time. So we'd worked out in the, in those apartments and uh, actually Tin I moved by then. Yeah, but we, yeah, we'd worked. Lonely people. In. Lots. Of, we were cutting four tracks a day. We were done with yeah. the, all the tracks in the first four or five days. In retrospect, could you have cut them as well yourself? No. No, the thing that he brought, if because believe me, there's so many George fans are numerous, but they'll say, "What did he bring?" And I say, I always say he brought focus. He he refocused the camera, and he and we were so concerned, as Dewey said, with pleasing him. Jeff Emmerich um, was there, engineering, and they were a team for, through the Beatle years. And right. for, for him, he even said to us when we was done, he said, "This can't possibly be a success. Nothing this easy could be a success." So and it was uh, yeah, for we, all of us. It was a, that was kind of the re reboot coming out of Hat Trick, and it did change the feel and the vibe. Everything was a little, little more different. The next album was going to be George Martin. We had a relationship then, and we were. It was a different feeling every time we recorded in different places. George was quite an adventure guy. He liked. Because then Traveling. went to Montserrat, right? Well, he built the studio in Montserrat because one of the projects we did with him, we decided, let's go to Hawaii. Why don't we record on Paradise? So we barged over the entire record plant to the island of Kauai. And we had the most wonderful two months. We made a crap album, but we had a, we had <laughs> a great a ton time. ton of Warner's money. Yeah. And well, he, our money. Your money, yeah, right. He then the took that as, you know, this is a great idea. And then he then built Montserrat off of that model. Really? And he yeah. went and made um, Paul's record, London Town, down right. there on a ship. He really always wanted to record on a ship, remember that? Yeah, yeah. But the logistics were so crazy, you know, moving and the whole thing. Okay. But also, we put him back in the charts. This was right. George, who'd done all of that Beatle music, was now, again, it had made him a current... And the shocker to find out that George Martin really didn't make a lot of dough on those Beatle records. In the I know his son. I know that's yeah, Giles. Giles. Yeah, sure. We know Giles. We know Giles. Yeah. Right. He was in the studio then uh, right. in, on that fourth album when they were little kids. He and, and Judy. I mean, and um, Giles and, and uh, Lucy. Lucy, right. Yeah. Okay. 
So you have Tin Man, you have Lonely People, and then how's Sister Golden here? What happens there? Well, that's the next album. But because Tin Man and Lonely People were big hits for us, and we were back, and George is in the charts, now he's quite willing to come to the States to do it because <laughs> the last one only took two weeks. So we booked the Sausalito, the record plant in Sausalito. We thought that would be lovely. I had Sister as a song, but I was already happy with the few I'd submitted for the holiday album, the previous album, and I'm very proud of those tunes. But when people asked me about it, I'd been sitting on it for a year or so. I had a demo that was virtually like the final master. And it was just part of the batch. We always, when we do an album, each one of us would throw in three or four. And um, I had uh, Sister and Daisy Jane on that album. So it was, uh, you know. And that became part of George's, he had to decide of these songs. He was very diplomatic, very... He was an admirable guy, tall and dashing and handsome and had this great accent. And, well, I don't think we need that one necessarily. <laughs> on, that's too similar to the one we did. But, you know, get rid of those songs and get to the ones that he felt. And he was good about that. I, I think yeah. we all had to uh, defer to his choices on the song selection. What about, you know, many bands... There's an issue, how many songs I got on the album, how many songs you got on the album, because we're making a different amount of money. Did that ever come up? Well, we were lucky that way that there were three writers, and each of us had hits, and each of us had, has, our, has our writer's name on that hit. But I think we, you know, it's always a group effort at the end of the day. There's always a, so many contributors to a song. But on the publishing, the person with the credits That's got the right. money? Yes. You know that the like the, the famous Lennon and McCartney stories where it helped each of them right. because it egged them both on. I think in our case, because we knew we were supposed to contribute three or four each, and this is why we picked, we'd pick three each or four each and then pick one cover song that we all agreed on. But it, I think that kind of competition was very constructive during that time because we'd each had some success it wasn't kind of the george harrison thing if i can't get my right. songs listened to you know and the first album was 13 days the subsequent work with george it got longer but not crazy it never again focused this guy was he he knew what he was doing and we were in not in awe of him by this point we had a really good working relationship like a father each, figure. Each day was structured. You know, he'd know we got to work on those background vocals on the third verse in that song. Uh, today we've got to cut a track, uh, this new track. Or when we were working by ourselves, especially on Hat Trick, it was almost come in and okay, let's. Do, I want to do my song today. Let's. And it dragged out, and we'd stay up late in the studio and be trying to get someone to run off a tape op, run off a cassette for us at three in the morning, so I can go home and listen to it. George cut all that out. You know, he had a working schedule. And I remember he'd say, we're cutting tracks. Let's do it one more time. We'll call this the egg and bacon cut because we were going to stop and have bacon. They call it egg and bacon in England. <laughs> so, you know, he just kept it moving along gently and smoothly. And because you can waste a lot of time in the studio if you want to. I mean, just Okay, back around. in that era, did he charge more than all the other producers? No. No, he didn't. And if you know that history, that his he had a, a staff deal at EMI. He made no money right. from all those Beatle records. He he actually openly in interviews said it wasn't until he worked with America that he made real money because we were selling millions of records, of which he had a good producer's points, and uh, you know about time. Not until they did the anthology project when they all got to renegotiate right. before we do this, and he made a ton off of all that. the Beatle re-releases. And right, stuff. right, yeah, okay. So, you know, for an amateur sitting here, George Martin says, oh, I want to record in England. I'm adding up, 
you know, sitting in the suburbs, the, the flights, the hotel rooms. Sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, does anybody ever say, well, that's going to cost us a lot of money? We were never good at that and didn't spot that until way too late. And you can, you can ex- extrapolate that out to getting private planes and keeping a limo on 24-hour call because you might want a burger and three of them. We didn't do good in that department, Bob. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so at the end of your hit run, at the end of the 70s, did you have any money? Yeah. Yeah. My joke line is that we tried our best to spend it all, but we haven't been successful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we did. We've managed. We're we're not uh, like some, but we're certainly no complaints. Okay, so how do you end up with capital? Our deal had come was winding down the seven years with Warner's, and what was the al- the last album was Silent well, we, Letter. The last one we did that was George. that was Capital, though. Oh, that was on Capital. Uh, Perspective was the last one. No. We did Harbor, the one in Hawaii was the last one we did with Dan. And the deal was over, basically, but they had an obligatory live album. Dan had left, and we owed one more album. So we went into the Greek theater. We had met um, Elmer Bernstein. And so we went in three nights at the Greek with Elmer Bernstein conducting the L.A. Phil, and we recorded all of that. George was allowed to produce in the States. He was now kept the place in the States, and his tax structure didn't allow him to perform. So we asked Elmer if he would conduct. So that was the final Warner's album. Those albums hadn't done well by that point, the, the usual ebbs and flows. Right, yeah. So were, Capital was interested. They paid us a pretty hefty advance. We had changed management by then. We, John Hartman and Harlan Goodman, who were part of uh, the Geffen Roberts uh, management team, had, had peeled off and had taken, I think, Crosby and Nash and... Poco, Poco and us. So I know Hartman well. I didn't know yeah, sure. <laughs> I do his class. I speak at yeah, yeah, I just, exactly yeah. right. And of course, bless his heart, Phil was his brother. Yeah, of course, course. and you have those mugs from uh, that he. Could... Phil, Phil did the cover of our greatest hits. The history album is a piece of artwork. Yeah, Phil, Phil Hartman does artwork. Yeah. Okay, so you switch to Capital. Yeah. And now we're a duo. And George actually said before we did that Silent Letter album, he said, "I'm not sure I've really got any more to contribute." I mean, he was. Clearly saying, I think this has run its course. I'll do it if you like, which we basically said, of course, you got to do it. Diplomacy. So that was the last one we did with George. And it didn't, although it had some international success, it didn't have anything here in the States. And Capital, having ponied up this money, now was given an album that was now two guys instead of three with no hits on it. So it was rocky from, from day one. Yeah, it, it, that those years are, are kind of... Now we're into the 80s and stuff is changing. Stuff was changing all the time in the 70s too, the disco movement. And But now the 80s is a whole new thing, new wave, and our music isn't really adapting to that. We we finally started using some different writers and some. we figured we can change virtually everything but ourselves, you know. We can try uh, some different... And people were... were Suggesting you got to use this producer, you got to listen to this song, you got to record that song. I remember feeling a, a bit discombobulated during that first few years, but we got um, You Can Do Magic was written for us and uh, Russ by Ballard. Russ Ballard, who's a great British writer. He'd written for uh, the, the Zombies. Argent. Or Argent. Right, and he was in Argent. Yeah, yeah Argent. and he That's wrote right. I'm Winning for Santana, which was right. one of their only actual AM hits. And that was, a, that was a breath of fresh air, and that was a shot in the arm, and it got us back into the top ten, and we were back. Uh, it, it gelled, and we came back together, I thought, pretty well. Those were exciting times at that point, and we could appreciate it that much more. Right, right. We hadn't had a hit for a while, and uh, there it was, and it put us back in 
in the mainstream, if you will, and we were doing TV and all the stuff. But um, it still felt like we were trying, stretching to get some some stuff on these records of our own. And um, some of it doesn't, it's not as cohesive. When you have three producers on a record, they all coming from, right. Bobby Columbi was working with us at that point, I remember. Uh, when when you're selling, everybody's happy to don't mess with it. You know, we were producing them ourselves, or George was, and they put them out, and you're selling. When you're not selling, everybody starts to come up with a hmm, right? Uh, you know, trying and so we're, we're trying yeah. to accommodate all of this different input. So whoever was the head, and Capital had three or four heads while we were there. It was, it was, it was changing almost yearly. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Hart had the same experience, right? They wrote on their own material. They were an epic, and they went to Capital. And then ultimately, they started singing other people's songs. Yeah. yeah. Well, again, I, I can't really say what their dynamic right. was that caused that. But I think everybody's intentions, right? Everybody wants to sell records. It's not like, hey, I'll show you what we can do with these guys. We can trash these guys in a couple of... And by the way, we were also growing up, if you will, and had marriages and children and mortgages. And it wasn't the apartments and the Three Musketeers anymore. There was a lot more to life, which is what starts happening, as we know. And I had moved to Marin County at that point, and I'd had a son um, in 77, and my daughter in 81. You'd had Matt, what year was 79. Matt? 79. So it's no more 24-7 music and rock and roll, you know. it's The, the juggling starts there, and it's... Uh, okay, are both of you married, been married how many times? I'm on number two. To my last marriage. Okay. Three. Three. And how long have you, you, you been married the third time? We've been together for seven years now. Okay. We've been married for two. And how many kids do each of you have? I have two sons, and I have now inherited three stepkids. So I have five total. And I, I was married 27 years to my first wife with two, do, with two kids, a son and a daughter. I've been married 17 years to my present Okay, wife. those are two long runs. How does it end after 27 years? <laughs> Oh, it wasn't that great. I mean, it was, we'd had a happy life. Uh, you know, it's, we'd been divorced since 98, and I've been married for 17 years to Penny, my right. present beautiful wife, and we're very happy. And I, I wasn't so happy at the end of my first marriage, and things, uh, the kids were already out. My son had already gotten out of high school, and my daughter was a senior, and things just, um, I wish I had an answer for that stuff. It is, it's a it's much it's longer sad. There's story. There's always yeah. sad stuff. You just can't get around life in, in these areas that, uh, you know, I, I, I always envision sitting on the porch in the rocking chair, looking back at my rock and roll life and having the same nuclear family and the, everything. You know, it's, I'm very grateful for, the, for what did happen in the first marriage and the children and the life we had in Marin County. It was cool and hanging out with the dead and a beautiful home. That's when we did have spent some money and, and stretched. But um, I'm very happy now. It's, it's a whole second, uh, second life. Now, usually when you're successful, divorces are very expensive. Yeah. So at this point, do you guys have to go on the road to pay the bills? Well, we'd probably have to adjust our lifestyle a little bit if we didn't. And the right. road, it became a business many years ago for us. But it's to, to just call it that is really is not fair because it's so much more than yeah, that. Yeah, we're but, a working band. I mean, it's Okay, it's so satisfying. how many days a year do you work? We like to 
call it a hundred shows, which is about two hundred days of travel. But it's it's been settling down now about eighty six shows. Eighty five, eighty six. And how often do you play outside of the U.S.? Every year, we're off to Italy uh, first two weeks of July. I now live. My wife is Australian, right. and we live in Sydney. And so we have a home in Venice here, and we have a home in Sydney. And for example, we just heard today that we're off to Australia for a two- or three-week tour later in the year. You know, it, every day the phone rings, and you're just not sure how it's going it, to... Well, just, at least it's ringing. <laughs> yeah, no, we, it doesn't all just fall in your lap, here's next year. You know, it has to be pieced together by a variety of people. And, uh, very grateful for that fact, you know, that the people still want to come to the shows. The agents can't not find work. There's stuff out there, lots of venues. We, we repeat play year after year. And it's a nice mixture of, of, of theaters and, of course, the casino circuit is great and arenas and festivals and tours in Europe. We were just in Israel for the first time uh, recently. There's always some new experience out there. I mean, we've played Africa, we've played Morocco, we've played India, we've played Indonesia, Malaysia, you name it, the Philippines, tours of uh, U.S. bases that took us into the DMZ in Korea. I mean, we've just had... An unbelievably fantastic uh, time of it, and we're not we're not looking to stop soon. You know, we're the Italian tour, for example, is all Roman amphitheaters, outdoor, historic, wow. under the stars in the middle of the summer in Italy. I mean, it's just beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Well, I know this guy who was photographer for Led Zeppelin in its heyday. This, of course, before digital photography, and he says, "I've been all over the world and I've seen nothing." Yeah. So when you guys go to these places, do you take advantage or if Tuesday it's, you know, Pittsburgh? It's a bit of both, I think. I try to personally, I try and add some time before or after. If we're going to someplace lovely, my wife and I will try and add a week if we can. We're off to Italy and we'll go four days early, which is as much as we could fit in in the schedule. So you do what you can, but uh, work comes first. We've always had an interest in it. And I think the fact that we traveled as kids uh, in the Air Force you're, you're just that little bit more looking at things and trying to center yourself in these places that you've never been. And and I think that applies in this business we're in, too, constantly looking. Look at maps, look at a, a, a visitor's guide, see what's around the hotel. Obviously, it's stressful uh, physically when you're touring and you're oh, yeah. one-nighters and you get into a town. You don't want to do anything, but uh, we try, especially foreign dates, you try to make an effort to see what's going on. Plus, I think we're somewhat anonymous. Uh, personally, it's not like it, it, it. I always use the analogy of Elton going to the grocery store. Right, you know, right, it's, right. It's right. tricky. <laughs> we don't really have that problem. If you're playing in a city and it's sold out or something, then there's a good chance you're going to be spotted or followed or something. But in general, we can move, move amongst the people. Okay. So if you do that many dates, when you start something, what is the most number of dates you'll play in a row? Three tops. Now, because of voices and stuff, we got to save these yeah. voices. We, were, we, used, we used to do five, six nights, two shows a night sometimes. I don't know how we even lasted. Uh, okay, so all, all your records on Warner Brothers, they own the publishing. Yeah. But since then, you guys got own the yeah, publishing. Yeah, we got our own publishing uh, since then. Okay. Uh, you just set up your own little publishing company. Yeah. So any bucket list things? Now that uh, you know, there's 20, 30 years left. Bob left it's 20, 30 years <laughs> broadcast. Hey, you did it. Yeah, you we made you know, it. Hit, hit, hit by a car out there on the outside. I mean, no. there's always something you want to do. You know, we, we've gotten to an age, though, we both agree, well, I'm just probably not going to do that one. I don't see myself <laughs> uh, yeah, jumping I'm not, out. 
I'm not going to climb Kilimanjaro, I don't think. Right. I had that on my list, but that's gone. But we've checked off a lot of stuff, you know, and, and uh, I'm hoping to still see great things, you know. Learned to scuba dive in this business, and, you know, we traveled. We've been on safari in Africa, and uh, it's just been some trippy things, man. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. Okay, you've been listening to America. Dewey and Jerry here on Bob Left Set's podcast. Thanks so much for coming by, guys. Thank Thanks, you, Bob. Bob. A true honor. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.